Book smart and gospel stupid. That's Peter. Book smart and gospel stupid. That's the disciples. Book smart and gospel stupid. That's us. If we're honest and if we can stomach the truth. Book smart and gospel stupid is what we'll see in Mark's gospel today as we continue our series binge watching Jesus. So turn to Mark chapter 8 in your Bibles now if you would and buckle up because Jesus is not going to play nice with the disciples today. In fact, he'll give one of them a new nickname, Satan. That's what happens when you try to mess with Jesus' calendar. He'll call you the devil. If you try to mess with Jesus' plans, he might just call you Satan. If you try to keep Jesus from dying, he'll call you the devil. And people think the Bible is boring. Author Chad Bird was recently asked the following question, and here's his response. What are you learning about life and following Jesus? I'm learning that failures and wounds and scars have been the greatest blessings in my life. For through them, Christ has made me weak that he might be strong, made me dead that he might be alive in me. Following Jesus means I must die. Only dead people are ready to begin discipleship. He's daily Good Fridaying me, my ambitions, my navel-gazing ways that he might Easter me. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, laughs in me, loves in me, works in me. And that's exactly what we will see in Mark's gospel today, and that's our big idea. It's simply this, let Jesus Good Friday you that he might Easter you. In other words, Learn to die to yourself, to die to your sin, to die to your wants, to die to your wishes, to die to your needs, to die to your preferences, and then find yourself waking up to newness of life. That's how we really live when we learn to die. So this week, I just kept rehearsing this as I was working on this sermon. I have to Good Friday my wants right now. I have to die to them. I have to Good Friday my wants. I have to Good Friday my wishes in this situation. I have to die to me, and then I will live. I have to let Jesus Good Friday me so that I can experience Easter once again. So that was me this week as I was working on this text. I just kept telling myself, i got to Good Friday myself in this situation because I want to experience Easter, newness of life. So we have to learn and relearn to follow Jesus by dying. We have to let Jesus every single day Good Friday us, and Good Friday our ambitions, and Good Friday our navel-gazing ways, so that he might Easter us. So look at Mark chapter 8, beginning of verse 27, and hear the word of the Lord. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So Jesus now takes the disciples up north to Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asks the disciples, what are people saying about me on social media? And they tell him, some people on Twitter are saying that you're John the Baptist. 
And some people on Facebook, they're saying that you're Elijah. And some people on Instagram are saying that you're one of the Old Testament prophets. And then uh, Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks on behalf of the group and he says, well, we believe you are the Christ. Now, recall that Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one. So Peter is telling Jesus that the disciples believe that he is the spirit-anointed Messiah that the Old Testament prophets were speaking of. And at this point, Peter and the disciples are proving that they are indeed book-smart disciples. They have answered correctly according to the book, according to the Old Testament. Jesus is the Christ, the Spirit-anointed Messiah who came to redeem God's people. So they get an A-plus here. They really are book-smart. But Jesus tells them to keep quiet about this. Jesus doesn't want them to tell anybody that he is the Messiah. Now why? Why does he do that? Why does Jesus want to keep this quiet? Here's the answer. Because the disciples are gospel stupid. They are book smart, but they are gospel stupid, and they don't even know that yet. Jesus knew people's hearts. Jesus knew that if word got out that he was the Messiah, then people would immediately want him to crown him as king and then beg him to overthrow the Roman government. That's why Jesus repeatedly throughout the Gospels tells people not to tell others who he is and what he has done for them. Because Jesus did not come to overthrow Rome and be king. He came to lay his life down as a ransom for many. He came to go to the cross, not just set up an earthly kingdom. Jesus came to be the second Adam, to live and die in our place. And then someday in the future, establish the kingdom of God in all its fullness when he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. Remember what we've seen in Mark's gospel so far. Jesus did not want his miracles to detract from his message or his mission. Scholars call this the messianic secret. Jesus knows that people will want to crown him as king and beg him to overthrow Rome once they figure out that he's the Messiah who was prophesied in the Old Testament. But Jesus does not want his miracles to detract from his message and from his mission. Jesus did not just come to do miracles. He did not just come to do weird things like spit in people's eyes, people who are blind, and then heal heal them. Jesus came with the message, the gospel, the good news, that God is doing something to remedy the sinful condition of humanity. And Jesus came with the mission, and that's the cross. Jesus doesn't want his miracles to detract from his message or his mission. And Jesus is about to reveal to the disciples that you can be book smart, but gospel stupid. And he'll do that by telling Peter that he's dressed up in a red suit and holding a proverbial pitchfork. Look at verse 31. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
So Jesus now begins to explain, and Mark tells us in verse 32, very plainly, so they could understand it, Jesus begins to explain to the disciples that he came to suffer and to die at the hands of the religious elite and then be raised three days later. So Jesus very plainly tells them that he came to suffer and die and that it would happen at the hands of Israel's seminary professors and Israel's pastors. You have to understand just how earth-shattering this was for the disciples. They believed that Jesus, as the Messiah, would eventually overthrow Rome and then set up God's kingdom. And now Jesus is telling them that the most famous pastors and the most famous authors and the most famous commentary writers in Israel, that they would be the ones who would eventually murder him. So this news is shocking and mind-blowing to the disciples. And this causes Peter to pull Jesus aside And he begins to rebuke Jesus and tell him that he's wrong about all this suffering stuff. Peter wants Jesus to stop all of this crazy talk about dying at the hands of the religious elite and then coming back from the dead. Peter does not believe that Jesus is in his right mind here. Peter's not buying it. It's kind of like in the Christmas movie, Elf which stars Will Ferrell as Buddy the Elf, one of our favorite movies in our house. Buddy, if you know the the movie, if you've seen the movie, Buddy leaves the North Pole and travels to New York City where he stumbles into a department store and he hears that Santa Claus is coming to town and is going to be in the store. So Santa shows up and Buddy's all excited, Santa, Santa! And then Buddy soon realizes as he's talking with Santa that this Santa is fake and he's not the real Santa Claus. So Buddy leans in close and he exposes the fake Santa in front of all the kids. So Buddy says to him, who the heck are you? And then he says, you disgust me. How can you live with yourself? You sit on a throne of lies. You're a fake. You stink. You smell like beef and cheese. You don't smell like Santa. That's Peter here in Mark chapter 8. Peter pulls Jesus aside to rebuke him and basically says to Jesus, who the heck are you? How can you live with yourself? You're supposed to live, not die. You sit on a throne of lies. You're supposed to be sitting on David's throne and you're talking crazy with all this dying and coming back to life business. You smell like death and cheese. You don't smell like the Messiah. And how does Jesus respond to all of this, you're the fake Messiah business? In short, the conversation goes like this. Peter says, get behind me, Santa. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Peter and the rest of the disciples just can't seem to comprehend that Jesus came to die. They are the blind man that we saw last week in the last paragraph. They only see Jesus halfway. Remember that blind man healing where Jesus healed the man, spit in his eyes, healed him partially, asked him a question, and healed him again. That was a parable for the disciples. Jesus was saying, you are only seeing me halfway. They only see Jesus halfway. Their eyes are blurry. They are book smart, but gospel stupid. Jesus doesn't smell like the Messiah to them. He sits on a throne of lies because the Messiah was supposed to come and triumph over Rome and triumph over all the kingdoms of the world. And so Jesus calls Peter 
Satan because Satan wants to stop Jesus from going to the cross. The devil doesn't want Jesus to lay his life down for his elect. But Jesus turns and Mark tells us he looks at the disciples and this then steals his resolve to continue on his mission to the cross. That's why Mark tells us that in verse 33. But turning and seeing the disciples, Jesus hears the whisper of Satan in Peter's words and when he turns and he sees the disciples, He is more determined than ever to lay down his life. And when Jesus turned and saw the disciples, he saw you. He saw me. He saw anyone who had placed their faith in him. And so seeing the disciples, after Peter says this, seeing the disciples and seeing you and seeing me, it stilled the resolve of Jesus strengthen him to go to the cross for our sins. It's unbelievable and it's amazing. Jesus was thinking of you, how he would lay his life down for you when he called Peter Satan. Jesus was thinking of you when he saw the disciples. When Jesus heard Peter's devil-scented words He was thinking of saving you, Christian, and how he would do whatever it took to get to the cross. And with his rebuke, Jesus is exposing Peter here as being book smart but gospel stupid. And the reason why is given in verse 33. Because Peter was not setting his mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Peter was essentially saying this to Jesus. Look, boss. There's a whole other way to go all about this. Death is not the way. The cross is not the pathway for success. This business model won't work, Jesus. It will only end in failure. So Jesus rebukes Peter and tells him that all of this man-centered talk is really just devil talk. Peter wasn't setting his minds on the things of Satan per se, meaning Peter wasn't thinking of pentagrams and black magic and playing with Ouija boards. Peter was setting his mind on the things of man. Natural, reasonable, understandable things like survival, like avoiding death, like avoiding suffering, like avoiding pain. Peter was thinking about natural and reasonable and understandable things. And Jesus will have none of it because his whole mission is centered on the very things that Peter and the disciples seem to be allergic to. Suffering, death, pain, the cross. Peter and the rest of the disciples and us, we need people to pull us aside and whisper in our ears, Let Jesus Good Friday you that he might Easter you. We have to die in order to live. We need weekly reminders. We need daily reminders that the road to the empty tomb must pass by the bloody cross. To get to Easter, you have to experience Good Friday. To be raised up from the dead, you have to be raised up on a cross first. This is not we, what we naturally want, though. We aren't comfortable with death. We're comfortable with comfort, right? With ease. 
But the way of Jesus is death, dying, rising every day, and dying again, only yet to rise again. Dying and rising over and over again is the pathway of discipleship. And what empowers us to die? It's the gospel. It's the good news that Jesus died for us. It's what Paul says in Colossians 2.14, that our sins, the legal record that stood against us, our debt was nailed to the cross. That's the indicative. Our sins are forgiven. And then after that, Paul says in chapter 3 of Colossians, put sin to death. Then comes the imperative. Your sins are forgiven, now put sin to death. It's the gospel that empowers us to put sin to death. It's that Jesus died for us that empowers us to put sin to death in our life. Jesus is very plainly teaching the disciples the way of the kingdom, that the way up is down, that the way to life is death. And these are things that we are often allergic to. And so Jesus is saying to each one of us today, learn to die to yourself to die to your sin, to die to your wants, to die to your wishes, to die to your needs, to die to your preferences, and then find yourself waking up to newness of life. Die and experience resurrection every day because that's when life comes, when you're not the center of the world, when I'm not the center of the world. We actually begin to live when we don't act like we're the king. That's how we really live. We have to learn to die. We have to learn and relearn and relearn and relearn to follow Jesus by dying. We have to let Jesus Good Friday us every single day. Good Friday our ambitions. Good Friday our navel-gazing ways so that he might Easter us. Listen, you can only follow Jesus if you're comfortable with death. Discipleship is for dead people. Our tagline here at Grace, which we say all the time, is that we want to stay busy making disciple-making disciples. Part of that means that we want to create a church culture where we are encouraging one another to die to ourselves, where we are coming alongside one another and whispering in each other's ears, you need to die. You need to die in this situation. And then, and only then, Will you really live? If you have marriage problems, you need to hear someone tell you this. You need to die, brother. Die to your rights. Die to your wants. Die to your wishes. And then your marriage will really live. And it works that way in any relationship. Are you experiencing relational strain this morning with someone in your life? What you need to hear is this. You need to hear these words. You need to die. Die to your rights, die to your wants, die to your wishes, and then and only then will you really live. That's how life comes. That's how restoration comes. That's how peace comes in relationships that are strained. That's when we die. Dying will actually set us free. Only dead people are ready to begin discipleship. And that's exactly what Jesus says as he now pulls the crowd in pulls him in a little closer to explain the way of the kingdom. Look at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, 
If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So Jesus tells the crowd that discipleship and following Jesus, it's for dead people. And that's a great place to be, actually. As Robert Capon says, Jesus came to raise the dead. The only qualification for the gift of the gospel is to be dead. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be good. You don't have to be wise. You don't have to be wonderful. You don't have to be anything. You just have to be dead. That's it. Discipleship is for dead people. To follow Jesus, you have to deny yourself and take up a cross. To follow Jesus, you have to deny all of your attempts at trying to impress God in order to win his favor. As if you could really do that. You have to die to self-justification through the law. You have to die to thinking that even some part of your salvation rides on your shoulders. You have to deny trying to save yourself through your works. That's the leaven of the Pharisees that we saw last week that Jesus warned the disciples about. Self-righteousness, Jesus is saying, must be put to death. To take up your cross is to be united with Christ. It's to be in union with him by faith. It's trusting in his life, death, and resurrection. To take up your cross is to deny all the ways that you deny the cross. To take up your cross is to deny and to put to death all the ways that you deny the cross in your life. And here's how we often deny the cross in our lives. It was in our prayer earlier. When we think of Jesus more as our example of good living than our substitute to trust in, we deny the cross. When we just look at him as a good model, we deny the cross. When we believe, even for one nanosecond, that our obedience earns anything from God, we deny the cross. When we believe the accusations and the condemning lies of Satan, we deny the cross. When we live with a critical spirit toward others and remember their sins against them, we deny the cross. When we hold on to bitterness and we dwell on other people's sins and what they do wrong and how they irk us and how they bother us, we feel good about ourselves, but you know what we're actually doing? We're denying the cross. When we wallow in self-contempt and shame, we deny the cross. When we refuse to believe that God loves us as much as he loves Jesus, we deny that Jesus' work on the cross was enough to redeem us and reconcile us to our Father. To take up your cross is to deny all the ways that you deny the cross. 
Jesus is clearly telling us that the way to be saved from God's coming wrath, which is coming because of our sin and our rebellion, we have to own that. The way to be saved from God's coming wrath is to lose our life. And those who lose their life by believing the good news of the gospel and all that Jesus has done for them, they are the ones who actually save their life. To gain the world and then lose your soul is the second death. To gain the world and experience 70 or 80 years of man-centered pleasure here on this earth, on this planet, that will result in an eternity of perpetual death in hell forever. Who wants that? That's not a good trade-off. 70, 80 years of living and getting everything that you want, man-centered pleasure versus eternity in hell. So Jesus is saying that you can live in this world. You can live in this world apart from him, but you will die for all of eternity. And that's the leaven of Herod that Jesus warned about earlier in Mark chapter 8. The pleasures of the flesh must be put to death. It's a life of licentiousness that only ends in death. Or, Jesus says, you can die in this life and then really know what it means to live for eternity. In other words, if you let Jesus Good Friday you in this life, then he will Easter you on the final day and then for eternity. But Jesus also says in verse 38 that those he was speaking to in that generation who were ashamed of him, ashamed of the message of the cross, ashamed of the gospel, ashamed of salvation by grace through faith, he said he would be ashamed of them on the final day. Jesus especially has the Pharisees in mind here, has the religious leaders in mind when he says this. Remember what we saw last week in verse 12 where Jesus refused to give a sign to this generation when the Pharisees asked for one? Jesus says, now those in this generation who are ashamed of me, I will be ashamed when I come again in glory. And it wasn't just for that generation alone. There are still people in churches today who want to water down the cross They want to dilute all this talk of the cross. They're like Peter, and they want to deny Jesus his cross. And there are churches who say, Jesus, you're welcome here, but you're going to have to leave that bloody cross in the parking lot. You can't bring that thing in here, so just put it in the back seat of your car, and then we will gladly give you a seat at the table. Just don't bring the cross in here because it reminds us that we are sinners. Understand this, Grace. The cross is not simply the logo of Christianity. Like we need to hire a graphic designer to update the logo every seven or eight years to make the cross more hip and more modern. And it's not like we need to rebrand ourselves again, like what IHOP did recently. And notice I said IHOP. I will not give them that B. I do not give B's up easily. We don't change who we are and what we are about. We don't need to update the logo. It remains bloody, gruesome, smelly, flesh, skin, bones, death. That's what we are about. And it's why the cross is central in this sanctuary. Because we need a weekly reminder right in front of our faces that we are in the business of death. We need a weekly reminder that this whole thing is riding on Jesus and not on us. And that's good news, isn't it, Grace? 
This whole thing is riding on him. That it's all about his death for us. So that cross right there should make your heart leap when you walk in this room every single week. You should walk in here and see that cross first thing. And your heart should leap within you and say, it's not riding on me. That's the best thing I've ever seen. It's not riding on me. It's all riding on him. That cross should remind you every week when you walk in here that you belong to Jesus and because you belong to Jesus, he's not ashamed of you. To save your life by linking your life with the bloody death of Jesus on the cross means that Jesus is not ashamed of you. To lose your life, to forfeit your soul, is to have Jesus be ashamed of you when he comes again in glory, which is what he says in verse 38. Whoever is ashamed of Jesus and his cross, ashamed of Jesus and the gospel, Jesus said, I will be ashamed of them. I will be repulsed by them when I come again, because when he comes again, he comes again in glory. He comes in glory, he comes in purity, he comes in red, hot holiness, and he will be absolutely repulsed by sinners who never trusted in his work. But in this life, whoever can look at the bloody, gruesome, grotesque cross and take it up as their own death, They are the ones who will experience seeing the joy on Jesus' face when he returns. What a smile Jesus will have on his face when we see him in glory. I cannot wait. How do you picture Jesus when he comes again? Do you think he's going to have a frown on his face? Do you think he's going to have his arms crossed and just think, I'm so glad this is over because you just kept failing every week, every single day. When Jesus comes again, there's going to be a smile across his face and he cannot wait to see you and embrace you. That's what it's like for those who are in union with him. I can't wait to see him. I'm not afraid to see him. He's my savior. And I believe the good news of the gospel and I believe when he comes again and I see him break through the clouds. It'll be the greatest reunion ever. I might push y'all out of the way. I'm just going to tell you now ahead of time. Okay? I'll have my resurrection, resurrected glorified body, but somehow it will not be sin if I push you out of the way to get to Jesus first. And if we have been united with him in a cross death like his, then we are God's children. And if we're God's children, then God is our father and Jesus is our big brother. We are in God's family. This is how closely related to Jesus we are. We are in union with him, our older brother. And we are being brought home to glory in spite of all the shameful things that we think right now and the shameful things that we say right now and the shameful things that we do right now and the shameful motives that are driving everything that we think, say, and do. We are being brought home to glory, Jesus says in verse 38. And on that day, when we stand before our Heavenly Father, Jesus will say, Father, even though they did a million things to get written out of the will... The inheritance is theirs, their family. I am not ashamed to call them brothers. He will not be ashamed of us on that day, even though he has a very dysfunctional family. And if you have a dysfunctional family, sometimes you're tempted to be ashamed of them, aren't you? 
Jesus has the most dysfunctional family in the world, and he's not ashamed of them. He's not ashamed of us. He's not ashamed of you. And on that day, as it is every day right now, the devil, the great accuser, will probably try and point his finger at us and say, them? They belong to you, Jesus? But they do what I do all the time. Do you know how unfaithful they are, Jesus? How fickle they are? The promises they make that they break all the time, all their so-called recommitments and rededications to the Lord, and then they totally blow it? How easily they listen to me, Jesus? Do you know what they think about in their brains when no one's around? Do you know what they say, what they do when no one's looking? I can't believe you associate with these people, Jesus. Aren't you ashamed of your family, Jesus? That's what the devil does now. And I assume that he may even try that trick on the final day too. And what will Jesus say then? In public, in front of all the hosts of heaven, in front of myriads of angels, Jesus will say, that's my brother that you're pointing to, Satan. That's my sister that you're accusing. This is my family. They don't embarrass me. I'm not ashamed of them. They're my family. I highly suggest you point that pointy, accusing finger down, devil. Of course, the devil does accuse us now, doesn't he? He loves to heap shame on us. And when he does, he has one intent, one goal when he shames us. And that is, if possible, to literally humiliate us to death. And that's why the devil uses shame. And it's why Jesus tells us in Hebrews 2.11 that he's not ashamed to call us brothers. The intent of shame is to humiliate you and me to death. Shame makes you feel unclean. That's shame. When you, you feel like something's wrong with you, when you feel dirty all the time, like you can't shake that feeling of just feeling dirty all the time. You feel like you've not measured up can't seem to get your act together. You feel worthless. You feel embarrassed when you think about things that you've done and said. When you feel rejected and you feel inadequate and you feel humiliated and you feel filthy and disgusting and repulsive and disgraced and unlovable all because of things that you have done or things you haven't done that you should have done or even things that have been done to you by someone else. That's shame. And so what do we do when shame intrudes and interferes in our lives? Here's a sign that shame has intruded in your life. You try to hide things, and you cover up, and you feel exposed. You never feel good enough. You feel like you can't be loved even by God. These are the telltale signs of shame, trying to hide things and cover up. Let me ask you this morning, what are you trying to hide? What are you trying to cover up this morning? Bring it to the table today. Bring it to the Lord's Supper today. We've all experienced shame. We've all been beat up by shame. We've all felt that deep sense that we are unacceptable because of something that we have done or something that was done to us. We feel disgraced. We feel less than human. And that's how shame works because shame is dehumanizing. Shame does not have any manners. Shame does not play by any rules. Shame doesn't care if you're singing a song in church, you're worshiping Jesus. Shame doesn't care. Shame will just show up and tap you on the shoulder and say, here I am, remember me? 
Shame does not respect personal space. Shame just intrudes. It barges into our lives at unexpected moments and it makes demands and it's relentless and it's intrusive and the devil knows this. So what do you do when the devil tells you all about your sin, when he tries to shame you? Just say, liar, liar. The devil hates that. The devil hates that. One word, two syllables, you can utter it. Liar. That's what Martin Luther meant in the, in the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, when he says, one little word shall fail him. That one little word, Luther said, is liar. Just call him liar and he'll leave. When shame comes and taps you on the shoulder and reminds you of all the things that you've done, just say, liar, liar. I'm in union with Jesus now. I'm clean, I'm washed, I'm forgiven. Christian, it doesn't matter what you've done, what you haven't done, or even what has been done to you. Jesus says to you today, because of my cross, you are accepted and you are forgiven and you are clean and you are washed and you are loved. And My past is your past and your past is mine now. Your past doesn't belong to you anymore, Jesus says. It belongs to me. It's not yours and so let go. I nailed it to the cross. I threw it into the depths of the sea. There's no trace of it anymore. It's gone. You're mine, and I'm taking you to glory, Jesus says, public glory, so rest in that. And if Jesus were here today, he'd stand right next to you in front of every person that you've ever known in your life, and he'd put his arms around you, he'd put his arms around this dysfunctional you, and he'd say, I love you, you belong to me. However, as Jesus warns here, for the unbeliever, the final judgment is one of terror and being exposed. Every unbeliever will stand before God and be exposed as sinners, exposed as rebels who broke God's law. It will be a time of fear and sadness for them. But please understand this. The final judgment is not primarily about striking fear in the unbeliever. Rather, The final judgment is primarily the occasion where God publicly and definitively demonstrates his love for his elect people. It's primarily about his people being vindicated and God being glorified in redemption and us seeing his smiling face and feeling his warm embrace. So for the unbeliever, their shameful sins will be remembered. And brought up at the last judgment. A movie of their life, if you will, will be played. And they will be publicly convinced of their guilt. But if you are in union with Christ, God dealt with your sins at the cross. Jesus offered himself up once for all for your sins. God dealt with your sins at the cross. When Jesus was condemned on the cross, Christian, you were condemned with him. When he died, you died. God judged your sins at the cross. Let me say that again. God judged your sins at the cross already, Christian. When you believed and were justified by faith in Jesus, that was God's final judgment on your sin. Justification, being declared righteous, is God's final judgment on your sin, Christian. When he declares you righteous, that's his final judgment on your sin. And that happens because you're crucified with cross, because you've taken up your cross, because you're in union with him. Which is why Paul says in Romans 8, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. There can be no charge brought against us. We cannot be condemned for our sins because Jesus died, and when he died, we died with him. So when Jesus returns, he's not coming to deal with our sin. 
He's coming to save us, to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And since Jesus has bound himself to you, he will testify for you before kings, even before the king of all creation, God the Father, on the last day. Jesus will testify publicly of his unfailing love for you on that day. Yes, the kingdom of God was on display in weakness and foolishness of the cross, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 18. But it doesn't end that way. As Jesus tells the crowd in verse 1 of Mark 9, some standing there that day would not die until they saw the kingdom come in power. I think Jesus is referring to his resurrection here. After the weakness and foolishness of the cross, resurrection power was coming. So Mark 9, 1 is saying to us, let Jesus Good Friday you that he might Easter you. The cross and then resurrection, weakness and then power. And that's why we're not ashamed of the cross here at this church. It's front and center. And being front and center, it testifies to us each week of God's love for us. Rod Rosenblatt said, When the major stress in pulpit and curriculum shifts from Christ outside of me dying for me to Christ inside me improving me, the upshot is always the same. Many broken, sad, ex-Christians who despair of being able to live the Christian life as the Bible describes it. What the sad alumni need to hear, perhaps for the first time, is that Christian failures are going to walk into heaven, be welcomed into heaven, leap into heaven like a calf leaping out of its stall, laughing and laughing as if it's all too good to be true. It isn't just that we failures will get in, it's that we will get in like that. You mean it was just Jesus' death for me? That's why I'm here? But of course, that's the point, isn't it? As a believer in Jesus, you won't be condemned. No believer in Jesus will be not a single one. The table before us today is telling us that heaven came down, that God came down. Why? Because Jesus just can't get close enough to his people. And here's proof. It's the bread and the cup. The Lord's Supper is an appetizer in which we feed on Christ by faith until the day comes and we celebrate the wedding supper of the Lamb. And how will we enter in on that day? Leaping and laughing and full of joy and amaze and scratching our heads that we got invited and we were actually welcome in Jesus' presence. And we'll sit down at the family dinner table on that day and we'll whisper to each other, You mean it was all just Jesus' death for me? That's why I'm here? And we'll respond to one another, yep, that was the whole point the whole time. Now let's eat. And that's the point as we come to this table. It's all about Jesus' death for us. And so now let's eat. Come today. Jesus will bring the bread and wine, or in our case, the small cracker and juice. But come, Jesus will bring the bread and wine. You bring your sin. That's all you bring to the table. You bring the old Adam. You bring your sin. You bring your rebellion. Bring your dirty thoughts. Bring those four-letter words that you say. Bring your bad credit. Bring your arrest warrant. Bring your dysfunctional family. Bring your broken summer youth camp promises. And bring your internet history. And Jesus will bring the bread and wine. And then we can party. And then we can celebrate. Let's pray and then let's eat. Father, thank you for your love for us. We are dysfunctional. And yet you love us and you're not ashamed of us. What 
glorious good news that is, Father, we repent this morning. We change our minds and say we don't want to live for ourselves. We want to die to self and live for you and experience newness of life. Forgive us, Father, of our sins. Wash us and cleanse us. May we feed on Christ by faith today and receive strength for the journey. And may we celebrate with joy this morning that you love us and you forgive us. In Jesus' name, amen.